Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Alec Mappa Hot Mess with Matthew Dempsey, psychotherapist. I'm holding a Chawini. <laughs> and I'm Matthew Dempsey. I am your psychotherapist and multicultural counselor. This is this is what I have to do. Otherwise, she barks through the whole show. So she's going to be asleep on my lap. Yes. It, it, don't let don't feel judged by that at all. You're, you're eminently Grandpa. fascinating. And for everybody who is not seeing what's going on right now, Alec <laughs> is cradling his dog like a little baby. So, you know, I was I had therapy on Monday and I don't think I'm ever going to go back and see him in person again. I, I miss seeing in person, but I don't want to drive to the valley. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you've, you've talked about this before, so you're right. very happy with virtual, but you didn't see him in person recently, did you? No, I haven't seen him in person since last February. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so I, I, and I, and I, do you think you're losing out on anything by not seeing them in person? I think that there's possibly maybe just a little bit, right? Of course, you're never going to get a hundred percent of what you get in any kind mm -hmm. of interaction mm -hmm. with somebody doing it virtually, but mm -hmm. it, I'm surprised at how much doesn't get lost, how much work you can actually do. And I was actually just talking to Stephanie, our producer, before we started the show today, who's also a therapist and we we're talking mm -hmm. about virtual therapy. And I was saying the one thing that most people don't realize is that virtual therapy actually offers an opportunity for people who would never even come into real therapy in real life because of how intimidating it is. So it oh, actually creates a space for a lot of other people. You think it's less intimidating to, um, I feel like there's no light on me at all. I have, a, I have a circle light, an overhead light, and I still feel like I'm a Chilean miner here. What is going on? I look gray. Well, I think you look beautiful. More oh, interestingly, though, I mean, we're talking about a lot of therapy. We're talking about lighting for shows that we're doing. And overall, yes. we're talking about a lot of work. And interestingly enough, our topic for today <laughs> is how much we can tend to overwork or hustle for our worth. Are you segueing me into the, the show? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> Let's get back on track, Alec. Yes. That yes. was completely organic. It was seamless, Matthew. I'm, so I'm what, put the Chawini down here. What would you say Listen. is your experience with work? How much do you tend to hustle and hustle and hustle to try to feel like you're enough? I've been an actor for 35 years in Los Angeles. I've been a gay Asian man working in television. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of um, a, a thrust needed at the, in the initiation of my career, getting right. my foot in the door. I mean, I just read for a pilot yesterday that had some pretty heavy hitters and had some great producers. And some part of me is always like, wow, I'm at this place. Mm -hmm. I got to this place. I yeah. got, but the first couple of years were really all about like getting my name out there, being noticed, setting myself apart, getting in the room. And then there were years where absolutely nothing happened. And then there's this kind of gradual kind of building of reputation and resume, et cetera. And then here I am. Yeah. But along the way, the biggest struggle has been, and we talked about this with, uh, with other guests is, uh, uh pinning your self-worth on what you do. Yeah. And if, sure. if you're a performer or if you're in the arts, you're in big trouble because at some point you're going to be unemployed and you're yeah. going to have to find out what defines you. What is your worth outside of working? And that yes. takes a lot of work. Yeah, that takes a lot of work. And I think for years I would just get I told you I would just get depressed whenever I was unemployed. And I would think that was just the way it was supposed to be. You know, I would right. get deeply, yeah. deeply depressed. And I go, well, how are I depressed? Well, because I'm not working. But that wasn't, that was really just a symptom of it. 
of what yes, was really totally. bothering me. The symptom was I felt worthless unless I was a television star. Totally. And that's the thing I think that yeah. we get to focus on in this conversation is how much we can attach our worth to things externally to us. So things like, mm-hmm. you know, performance and, and work and all that kind of stuff, but we get attached to it, meaning mm-hmm. that we place our, you know, we attach our value to it um, as opposed to being able to just kind of connect through the work that we do, you know, as kind of an offering, but it not defining how much we mm-hmm. matter. But I kind of relate to you because when I, um, you know, not a performer, but when I started out in my career, I was a really young therapist and I had to mm. work hard and hustle to get into grad school that I wanted to get into mm-hmm. and then to start, you know, kind of getting work and then inevitably doing my private practice. Yeah, that's and it what was, equity we call it. Right. But it was but it was really hard. So I had to put a lot of work into it. But what I started to realize after a few years was not that I was just working really hard to do the work that I love, but I was working real hard to feel like I was enough and to feel like I was okay and that I mattered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Velvet rage. <laughs> Velvet rage. Because yes. with gay guys, our self-worth is it, it's it's not just that I have to be successful. I have to be extraordinary. I gotta yes. be rich. I got my body has to be hooked up. Yeah. My Instagram has to have photos of me and Ibiza. So we're all, you know, we grow up feeling like it's all about external validation. It's all about the external. Who's noticing yeah. me? Who's watching me? And then when you move to Hollywood and you work in television, you are treated like a toddler when yeah. you're on set. Somebody brings you breakfast. Somebody brings you a sippy cup. You are taken care of. You are coddled because there's a there's a whole group of people whose sole responsibility is to make sure you're on time. You get there. Like so what, so what does that do then? What does that do for you? If I'm walking Matthew to set. I'm walking Matt. Well, if you take it personally, if you start drinking the Kool-Aid. Oh, uh, Okay. And it's taken away, then you end up robbing a liquor store. Do you know what I mean? It's yes. like that's that's why so many child stars end up going nuts because they are they're taking out of this uh, rarefied environment and then plunged into the abyss of being a regular person. They have no internal sense of who they are. So they're like, why isn't the world treating me like I'm amazing? And then, you know, you start numbing out with drugs. So totally. it's. So I'm what, you know, it's I I'm not a fan of unemployment, but what long stretches of unemployment have taught me is to find that sense of worth is to find that sense of because it's like, yes, because you know, sure. it's, it's just sure. our, it's work. It's not our whole lives. It's not who we are. Yeah. And it, the very simple thing is I'm not my work. Yes, I'm not my work. I love that. And also, and I've said this in here before too. favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes, stop the glorification of busy. We as a culture play so mm. much, we play so much yeah. value on our on mm-hmm. our ability to be busy and to work hard and mm-hmm. to hustle, right? And I mean mm-hmm. that's really kind of at the heart of capitalism, which is so obviously entrenched yep. into into American culture. Also, so, you know, you a know, bunch of Puritans landed on a rock, and that was their ethic. You know, right. this this country is founded on the ethic of uh, work and labor equals virtue. Totally, and listen, I I get it. I, you know, I want to work. I love working. I love doing what I do. But if you're at the point where you're depleted, yeah, where you're completely depleted, you have, you can't give what you don't have. Absolutely. So if you, if you, if you're, if you're trying to nourish people from an empty will, they're just getting rocks. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You have to make yeah. sure that you're taking care of yourself for first so that your cup is full first and then whatever runneth over is for everybody else. But it's kind of hard to figure out what that is. And, and I actually liked what you were talking about 
in terms of like, you know, the kind of development rage and growing up gay. And I think a lot of people mm -hmm. can relate to that one way or another, if having some kind of marginalized experience in life that it then right. creates this bullshit narrative within us that there's something lacking within who we are because we're not meeting a certain societal standard or, you know, kind mm -hmm. of gold star. And so then we start mm -hmm. to spin our wheels externally to who we are, to the heart of who we are, and we start grasping for everything outside of ourselves. And so work mm -hmm. is being one part of that. It's a way that we can over, overwhelmingly throw ourselves into something to try to feel like we're enough. <laughs> Well, you know, as a as a sex and love addict, my my Tweeny just fell. Um, <laughs> she's fine. Excuse me. Um, what was that? As a sex and love addict, it that that's really all about externals. It was all about like, but what happens is, as an addict, the first hit you get is great, and you're high and everything. The thousandth hit you get does you don't feel it anymore. There's nothing. Yeah. It's it does not it does not fill the hole. Yeah. <laughs> what have you found to fill the hole, Alec? Doesn't fill the hole. Well, you know, somebody, a guest was on here recently who just said, my self-worth is in standing still. I find yeah. my self-worth in sitting still. Yeah. You know, listen, we, we're, we're a blip on the screen, our lives. We're going to yeah. be here. We're going to vanish. And <laughs> I honestly feel like my mental health and my self-care is really all about like, I want to have a good time for the rest yeah. of, for the rest of my life. I'm not, it, 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 it's not going to border on, um, because we've talked about this before, uh, toxic positivity. Yes. But I really do believe in operating right now, at least that we're not here for a long time. We're here for a good time. Well, and so, yeah. So how can I how can I facilitate that in terms of taking care of myself? Yeah, I would I would say for me, kind of what my larger objective is, is how can I be okay with exactly where I'm at? Mm. Knowing, knowing that that inevitably will increase the likelihood for me to have a good time, but that's kind of like the icing on the cake, but I got to bake mm -hmm. this fucking cake first. And I yeah. want to make sure that no matter where I'm at, no matter what's going on, that I'm okay with me. But I'll say, you know, as it relates to this kind of overall topic that we have today about, you know, hustling for our worth and workaholism and all that stuff. I've still kind of struggled even this past year, you know, cause it's, it's always an ongoing practice to get better at it. But over this past mm -hmm. year, really having to sit my ass down, not being able to do a whole lot of what I would normally do, as is the case for all of us because of a global pandemic, you mm -hmm. know, and every other thing. And it's really forced me to continue to do more and more and more of that work. I've had moments where I've felt kind of like, you know, dysthymic or even depressed and just down and blue or anxious. And the way that I've kept framing that for myself is that this is growing pains that I know, mm. even though this sucks, that I'm getting stronger in the same way that if I went to the gym and was like, you know, working my ass off, I know that I'm mm. getting stronger in that way. That's how I framed it this past year. And that's kind of what's been helpful. For me. When life sucks, it's making you stronger. That's right. Is that a quote? I don't know. I just, that's what I thought. <laughs> I love an alchemism. You're a vision and mustard today. You're so cute. <laughs> Thank you. All right, well, speaking of workaholism and just hustling and killing it, that reminds me of our next guest who I'm extremely excited to talk about. You probably know him best for his work on The Ellen Show or for the viral sensation he created with his food reaction videos, which I 
love. He now has his own YouTube channel called The Kalen Allen. And he also did this incredible Christmas special, which was amazing, called For Christmas Sake. So if you haven't seen it, check it out, even though we're not in the season anymore. His career has really taken off, and he's now one of the hosts on Food Network's Cake Alikes, which he'll tell us about. And he made his film debut in a Seth Rogen film called An American Pickle. Can't wait to see what this guy's going to accomplish. Please welcome to the program, Kalen Allen. Yay! Yay! Hi! Hi, Hi Kalen. How, How are you? you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Good, good. Very so good. We're talking about the hustle today. I heard. People uh, kind of got caught up in 2020 in being busy. Mm -hmm. I was definitely one of those people. Tell us about it. Well, you know, I think for me, because of everything that was happening, I'm just used to always being a workaholic. And I know, so I'm going to preface it. I'm 25. So when I say that, a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're so young that, you know, like you've only been working a couple of years. But I don't think people understand is that my entire childhood, I was working. Like, mm. for instance, when I was 12 years old, I was already the president of my NAACP Youth Council. Oh, so wow. I, I was already running teams and stuff like that at a very young age. And so that was really all that I ever did. And now, but I also feel like I was always working in order to become successful or to have money or to have some type of status, you know? Yeah. And now that I feel like I've somewhat accomplished that, after 2020, after looking back at how hard I worked, like you talked about for Christmas sake, after I did for Christmas sake and I looked at it, I was like, what did I do this for? Like, why did I do all this work? <laughs> I was like, that, it, it was an amazing project to do, but it also stressed me out. It yeah. was so much work. Yeah. And, and then I was just like, now that I've gotten into 2021, now I'm in the space of like, I don't want to do anything at all. And yeah. I think it's also because I think a lot of people in 2020 got the opportunity to really sit with themselves and try to like, just enjoy their life. And I don't think I enjoy my life enough. Yeah. I think at the age of 25, when I look back at everything that I do, it's just always work. I'm mm. never at a club. I'm never going on vacations. I don't do any of that. All I do is work. When I looked at my expenses, all my money went to work. And I was just like, I'm I'm young. I should be enjoying. You're like Tiana in Princess and the Frog. Right. I, <laughs> I should be enjoying the fruits of my labor. So now I'm in a mood of like, no obligations, please. Yeah. Well, before we jump into everything else, which is just like, it's such a great topic for us today. I have to say that I did see it for Christmas sake and it was so good. I know that you're telling me that it stressed you out and it was probably more than you needed to take on. But just to give you praise for that, it was such a fucking good like show of oh, it and like you. the production value of it was amazing thank you were you. fucking amazing <laughs> i didn't even know you could sing you made it the gayest christmas special ever and it was so good yet you still managed to keep it totally traditional at the same yeah. time i was like how did he do this it was so good hey, look how much joy you brought to matthew well, <laughs> well yeah that was the made a white man very happy <laughs> so yeah, well, I mean, and, and I love that you talk about the fact that it, we kept it very traditional because that yeah. was the goal. The yes. goal was that we were going to center the queer community within this Christmas story yeah. without making it about who we were. Yes. Mm. Totally. It was just it was supposed to be like every other Christmas movie. It's just people. Yes. 
telling, talking about the holidays. That's what I wanted it to be. And so I got, it was important. I made sure that I had representation for every single letter within the spectrum. Yeah, you really did. It was so amazing. And one of the, I think like one of the uh, kind of like sweetest moments too was at the end, because Wanda Sykes narrates it kind of like as, oh. and at the end, she, she said something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to fuck it up, but said something along the lines of, you know, it's, this is like a, you know, it's like, isn't this the great, the gayest Christmas special, but doesn't everybody deserve a happy Christmas or something yes. like that? Yeah. Well, I wrote her line. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was, she says at the very end, she says, well, wasn't this the gayest Christmas love story of all time? Yeah. Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. Uh, everybody <laughs> deserves the holidays, no it matter was what so they say. good. And for anybody who has not seen it, you play Mr. Claus, you play the husband to yes. Santa Claus. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. So, I all mean, right, let me like let me take over the holiday. We're such a gay holiday anyway. Such, you know? it, 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 yeah, we just yeah. need to really reclaim it's it. Perfect. <laughs> so, was it then? Was it then this special that you did? Was that kind of the pinnacle where you were like, "Oh my god, I really kind of reached everything I needed to do," and I'm zapped? Was this it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think, I think what it started to look at, especially with the, you talk about production value, like how much it cost, how much yeah. work it was. I mean, I worked on for Christmas sake from March until December, wow. you know, like that was a whole pandemic worth of time. And I think I just looked at it and I was just like, I feel like I do a lot of overworking, a lot of overachieving that I don't necessarily have to do. And also I looked at all the stuff that I had done in three years and it's, and it's a lot. And I was yeah. just like, I don't necessarily always have to work this hard. Hard, you know, and I think it has a lot to do with a cultural mindset of feeling like we have to always work twice as hard mm -hmm. to get half of what our Caucasian counterparts get, yeah. you know, yes. which is very true. And I think that's why I work so much. It's like, well, I, I'm still trying to prove myself. I still got to get more and get more and get more, you know. And I think I said, well, if everybody else is stopping down, if everybody else is resting right now, well, I'm going to take advantage of this time. Mm -hmm. And I'm a rest. And then when things start to pick back up and we start to get back to normal life, okay, then we'll start doing a whole bunch of work, you know? Well, you know, what I'm hearing is the the, the conditioning of I have to work twice as hard because mm -hmm. my version of that was I'm not going to get as many opportunities to fail as a white person. Mm -hmm. Yes. As, a, as an Asian person, I, you know, with, with television is I have five minutes in the room with you, five mm -hmm. minutes of to, to convince you to put me on your show and that 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 time is precious and I don't have a million opportunities to be brought back in so I got to hit it now and so that made me a very very hard worker at the beginning but if you look at it from a scientific standpoint the thrust it takes to get noticed mm -hmm. to get to a certain place mm -hmm. now was it always your goal to, I mean, because you became famous through a viral video. Mm -hmm. Was that the plan or is that something that just happened? That was by accident. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, so, yeah, so originally I was at uh, Temple University in Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, I was studying theater and film with a concentration in acting. Mm. And actually, the week that I moved to L.A., I actually had an audition at Juilliard for grad school. That was the plan. Mm. The plan was to go to New York and be a stage actor. That's what uh -huh. I wanted to be. Classic um, brain stage actor. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And so that's what I wanted to do. And then one day I was about to go to work and I came across this video online and I was like, oh, I'll just throw up my, my phone and press record and you know for fun for my friends and then i uploaded it that night and it went viral 
And then I was like, oh, well, I guess I should probably do some more. So then I was like, okay. So then I made like five consecutive videos. And then <laughs> from there, it just, I was moving to Los Angeles. <laughs> so that was never, that was never the goal to go nope. viral or to create something. So it, it happened in an organic space. So walk us through how you find out. You, okay. You become famous. <laughs> so the first video, when I woke up the next morning, I couldn't open the app. Like my Twitter app wouldn't work. And I was like, what is wrong with my social media today? And then once it started to actually open, that's where I saw that there were thousands of retweets and thousands of likes and thousands of comments. I mean, Seth Rogen was uh, retweeting it. Chrissy Teigen was retweeting it. And I was like, what is happening? Then all of a sudden I started getting bombarded with emails and DMs. And I was like, well, I guess this is a thing. So then I made the other videos and then about... That was in November 2017. And then about four weeks after the first video, I made a video about potato salad cake. That video, <laughs> that video also went ultra viral. And then that's when I got the DM from the Ellen DeGeneres show. Oh, okay. And so then I called back and I was getting offers from a lot of different places. I mean, I was getting calls from Food Network. I was getting calls from Bravo, like all wow. over the place, like freelance producers. And so then once I got the Ellen call, I did the whole interview process or whatever. And then I was brought on the show December 13th of 2017. I thought I was just coming in, giving me a cute little check and going home. Mm. So I sat there and then she offered me the job. And then I said, okay. And I called my university. I said, we need to figure out a way for me to finish my degree in LA because I have to move. And then I moved to LA January 13th of 2018. And then from there... That's yeah. how we're here. Wow. I love that. I love, I mean, obviously I love all of that. Just hearing all that. Now I also was following you when you were making all the food videos and dying laughing at every one of them. Um, but even when you're talking then about how, you know, you're reaching this kind of like the pinnacle of this kind of like success and attention mm-hmm. and visibility and all that stuff, you're still like, and I need to finish my college degree. Mm-hmm. You're still throwing yourself into this kind of like working and making sure that you're completing kind of all these other tasks at the same time too. So how do How do you then at this point now, like you're talking about how you're like, okay, it's time for me to rest. How has that emotionally felt for you to Mm. to actually say, I'm not going to work now for a period of time? Because that kind of stuff usually comes with some kind of reckoning. So how is it for you? It feels amazing. Mm -hmm. It feels amazing. It feels amazing that the fact that when I get off of this call, Mm -hmm. I can go watch Netflix peacefully. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it, it, it feels it feels lighter. Mm-hmm. It feels it helps my mental health. It helps me to be able like I I was so bad when it came to working so much that I would honestly only eat one time a day wow. because I didn't think and instead of eating and making eating a priority in my head was like, well, I could be doing work during that time. Right. That's a waste of time. You yeah. know, and now that I have allowed myself to condition myself to believe that I have an ample amount of time in the day. Now I can wake up, take my dog for a walk. I can mm-hmm. cook breakfast. I can then schedule my day out. I can make sure that I work out. And so my goal was to take care of my career. Well, take care of myself just as much as I take care of my career. Yeah. Yeah. Not everybody does that. <laughs> not, right. No, not everybody does that. But I but I but I feel you, too, because I myself go through waves of work, whether it's with a lot of clients or making some videos for social media or this or whatever. I go through waves where it's like I'm doing a lot and it's like, oh, OK, I'm feeling good. But then also a period of time comes when I'm like, OK, I'm not making any videos. I'm going to chill the fuck out mm-hmm. and just rest for a little bit. And what I notice is that there's usually like a good uh, 
two, three, maybe four months where I'm really just kind of like hitting a baseline until I then start to feel that like itch again, where I'm like, eh, and, and shit starts to get stirred up for me. So I guess I'm just kind of curious for you, like how long would you be chilling before you started to kind of like feel the anxiety oh, yeah, get stirred back. up? Yeah. Well, um, so I really experienced that anxiety at the beginning of the pandemic. Because um, everything shut down. So mm, there was no work, you know, mm-hmm. and that wasn't by my choice. Right. That was just like, there's nothing to do. We don't know what's happening. We're, mm-hmm. We have to pause on everything. And I started to freak out. I remember there was a moment where I was literally on the bathroom floor, like in the fetal position, because I couldn't understand what was going on. And I hated that there was nowhere to go or nowhere to turn or nothing to do, mm-hmm. you know. And then once I started to condition myself to find other things to do that wouldn't necessarily work. That's why I have this cello back here. Cause oh, I was yeah. like, but let me get things that I can do. You know, I started reading more. I started playing cello. I started writing more. So I found other things to fill my time and to keep myself, you know, activated yeah. within the yeah. day. You play uh, for real, for real. Are you a real cellist? Um, well, yeah. I, so I played in elementary and then I quit when I hit eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to um, just start picking back up and start. Oh, playing. wow. So yeah. it really, it really was from a really young age then that you started, you know, kind of finding ways of throwing yourself into certain things to be able to achieve, to be able to work hard. I mean, as a kid, okay. if I was not on the honor roll or if I didn't get straight A's, it was devastating to me. Yeah. yeah. Like even when it came to like reading in kindergarten, if my if I did a reading test and I wasn't on a fifth grade level, that was yeah. a problem for me. You how, know? Much, Kaylin, how much of that do you do you attribute to being a black gay kid in Kansas? All of it. Kansas City. All of it. Um, I think my mother. My mother's display of love really only came if I was being successful. Oh, it was, oh, it wow. was, it was like achievement. It was yes, like, like, achieve, like I wasn't the kid that got money for getting good grace. It was expected, oh, you know, wow. like yeah. I didn't get an allowance, but I got everything that I wanted, you know? So it was like, but for me, it was like, it was very much like, oh, look what I did. Look what I achieved. Yeah. Is this enough? Yeah. You know, I think even mm-hmm. when it came to coming out, yeah, like, it was very like me and my mother struggled for a very long time. And the big thing about that, that I couldn't understand. And what I said to her, I said, I could be in jail. I could be doing drugs. I could be doing oh, all wow. things. Yeah. But I am out here succeeding and that's not enough. Right. That's, that's yeah. not Ooh. enough. Well, you because you, you words, also, and you've yeah. also, you've been really um, kind of open and public about the fact that you have only come out like really only a few years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So you were already kind of at the height of a lot of visibility and success. Exactly. And that was happening. Exactly. And that was a big blow to me. And I think that also attributes to why I'm like done because I was recently dating a guy, right? Yeah. And it very much felt like I was always like, well, I can cook, I can clean, I can do all these things. Like my mother conditioned me to be like the perfect husband. Yeah. You know? So then in dating, it was just like, well, I'm I'm perfection. I'm the Brie Vandekamp, you know? Why don't, <laughs> why don't you love me, you know? And right. then I started to realize that it was like, my productivity is not dependent on my worth. Yes. You know, how much I put out does not mean that somebody is going to treat you a certain way or somebody's going to love you or something like that. So I said, so why do I do all this? Yeah. Well, you yeah. just, uh, you just said it. It was, it's kind of like we, that's how we learn to be loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We learn, I learned that, 
you know, my dad's cranky, but he was happy when I did something good. He totally. was happy when I made everybody laugh. He was happy when, you know, but it wasn't until I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like till like right before I turned 30 till I was like, I was starting to discover I'm not what I do. Yeah. My self-worth isn't what I do. And as queer kids, we just have to astonish the world. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's not yeah. enough for, we're not, we don't grow up. Well, I, I'm speaking the Royal. We, I, I, I did not grow up going, you're amazing right now yeah. with, without doing anything, mm-hmm. without achieving anything extraordinary because you're on the planet mm-hmm. and yeah. you're worth loving and you're worth engagement. Like that's that to me as a parent, that's the most important thing I can pass on to my kid yeah. and to the point where he's like, I know God, no but it's true and i think that it's really it's so understandable right especially for like our parents the thinking is i really want to help motivate my child to kind of be the best version of themselves and they're using their own lens their own filter about what that Mm -hmm. takes to get there and so it's about like a lot of hard work a lot of the bullshit that we've learned in this culture when the truth is and psychologically speaking the only thing that children need to know is that you are there and you are giving them attention Mm -hmm. and that you care about them just exactly as they are. And that is the very thing that instills a more positive sense of self. So when we find ourselves having to, to hustle and, you know, prove our worth, then it really starts to create this shame for us. You know, this idea yeah. that, that I myself am not enough. So not I'm enough. I'm not right. Enough. And I don't necessarily regret it because I think, I think every single family has different generational trauma and different type of things that uh-huh. they, you know, project onto their children. Yes. Now, I think for me, my responsibility as an adult now mm-hmm. is we do a lot of talking about, you know, uh, becoming. We talk about how somebody becomes successful or something like that. Yeah. My focus now is how do I unbecome? All, yeah. the, the, all the extra fluff, you know, because yep. I was having a conversation with a friend and I was like, and they were like, well, you have everything, you know, you have this wonderful apartment. I said, yes. But when I look at it, I see it as this is all a product of my trauma. You know, it's like I worked wow. so I could get out of Kansas City so that I could be better, that I could be great. Oh and now God. all this stuff is just- Television is covered with my trauma. You can find it on Netflix, Hulu, <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> yes, like all these are trophies. And I said, so now I'm trying to learn how to look at all this stuff that I have and be grateful and be like, wow, look what I've done. You know, I think that mm-hmm. also comes with another microaggression that they give minorities of being always telling us to stay humble. You know, right. Uh, oh, I, I was about to ask you in keeping with that, Kaylin, what mm-hmm. do you think is unique? What is it? What What is unique to black queer people in, in growing up? Because I, I've I've dated a lot of black men. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, a lot. Uh, and, um, and, and, and in my experience, they vary between like I'm accepted by my family or I have a hard time with my family. Mm-hmm. And it was all I ever got was that being black and queer was, was there's a level of difficulty there that nobody will ever able be able to kind of get their head around. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, there's, there's just centuries and generations of trauma that is related to this specifically rooted in slavery, mm-hmm. you know, with mm-hmm. the way that uh, the masters would rape the, the black men. You know, and Mm. so there's that connection to it. There's also the hyper uh, masculine 
thing that black men have to be. You know, you yeah. got to play basketball, you got to play football, you got to have big, strong muscles, you got to be the man of the house, you got to take care of it. Because the black man found power in the household because they were not given that power outside got it. in regular society. Got it. And so I think what happens is that you also have a lot of single uh, mother households within the community as well. So you have mothers that are raising their their black sons, and then because the father is not in the household, then it's looked at as, oh, well, she's turning him into a sissy. You know, mm-hmm. like she's turning him, making him be too soft. You know, and I think a lot of that pressure starts to seep in to our beings. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think specifically for me personally, it's like I I hate the barbershop. Even as a kid, it was like the most scariest thing that I could do was to go huh. to a barbershop because of the toxic masculinity. Yeah. I felt like I, as yes. soon as I walked in, I had to walk a certain way. I had to look a certain way. I yep. couldn't dress a certain way. I think I even feel that when I go home to Kansas City, it's like I have to realter what I take home and wear because yeah. of how people will look at me, you know? And I yeah. think what also makes it difficult is like, okay, one, you're gay. Mm-hmm. So you're also facing homophobia from a nation right mm-hmm. and you're in your you're facing homophobia specifically within your own community as mm-hmm. well at a heightened sense mm-hmm. and then now you're also black so now you the white people don't like you you know and all these other people don't like you and so now you have to figure out the intersectionality of it and what happens is that black gay men don't have a sense of belonging Mm. We don't know where we fit in. We Mm. don't know where we belong, which is why ballroom culture was created. But because we, and that's why you got house mothers and stuff like that, you know? It's like because of black, brown people didn't have anywhere to fit in. That affirmed who they were, that accepted who they were. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so it's like, well, we have to create it ourselves. And I think that's what happens a lot of times is that we don't feel like we belong and we don't know how to accept ourselves because nobody has ever showed us how, what it feels to be accepted. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there, is there anybody that for you is like some version of a role model or somebody that you look up to as like a black queer person um, or at all that, that helps maybe kind of give you some structure or framework of how to maybe navigate this? I would have to say no. And I think that was the problem that I had growing up was that when people would be like, well, who do you look up to? Who are your mentors? I didn't have any, mm-hmm. you know, cause like probably the only person that was in mainstream was RuPaul. Right. But the only time you saw RuPaul, he was in drag and drag. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I didn't identify with that. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not a drag queen, you know? Right. So like when it came to anybody else, other than that, nobody in mainstream media, you know, of course there was people that were like DL or they didn't talk about, right. or it was right. rumored or something like that, right. you know? Yeah. But other than that, you know, like Duke Ellington or like a Luther Vandross or something like that. But other than that, it wasn't right. talked about. Luther so, Vandross didn't talk about anything. Uh, exactly. Billy Porter, I just name dropped. Sorry about mm. that. Hope everybody's feet were clear off the floor. Um, <laughs> and he said that what he had to do for himself in life and in his career was there was no role model. He said I had to create a whole category for myself mm. and 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 to to fill it. Mm-hmm. And, and he said the category for me was a gay black leading man. And that did not exist before. And when he started perceiving himself that way, then it made him look at work in a completely different way. And I think that's it's it's really about like, what do I bring to the table? 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's because it, when there aren't any role models, you know, I'm my role model was Carol Burnett. My role model was Gilda Radner. I just wanted to go in and be an idiot and make it <laughs> laugh. But I'm in the body of a gay Asian man. How can I get you to buy that? Right. Yeah. And it's. I think that what you're doing now is what Billy's doing. You are, it sounds as if you're creating this category for yourself and you're, you're excelling at it. Yeah. yeah and, and I think for me, what was important was that because I realized that growing up, I didn't have a mentor. And I think that's why when you talk about for Christmas sake, it would have been easy for me to just stick to doing food videos, but it was important for me to make sure that I diversified myself yeah. because Everything that I do is for the purpose of representation and visibility, for the purpose of opening up doors and breaking glass ceilings so that other young black queer men can see me and say, that's what I can be and believe it. And then that way, since I've done it, now you can come behind me and take the platform as well and take the space because it cannot always be just a few. We cannot continue. I do not want to be 20 years from now. And every time we talk about black gay men, all we say is RuPaul, Billy Porter, Kaylin Allen, Todrick Hall, and then we leave it at that. And then that's mm-hmm. it. <laughs> all right. right. How's this for a segue? Tell us about your Food Network show because it sounds really, really cool. Oh, yes. Well, it's funny because <laughs> RuPaul, we do RuPaul on uh, the Food Network show. So the, the name of the show is called Cakealikes. And it's mm. on Discovery Plus right now, which is their new streaming service. Mm. And Cakealikes is basically what we do is that we bring in these amazing cake artists from around the country. Fabulous. We bring them into a kitchen and they have to make life-size cake models <laughs> of celebrities. <laughs> and they only have 14 hours to do it. So it's, it's merely impossible. But I mean... Is it like nailed it where there's just a oh, yeah, yeah, oh. All the time. I mean, cakes fall apart, <laughs> cans fall off, like people are deformed. Like it, 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 anything is possible. It is anything is possible. And it is honestly a joy to do, mainly because my purpose on the show is to be the comedic relief. Yeah. And everybody knows that I'm going to tell you how it is. And I'm very outspoken because even if you watch the episodes, uh, I often felt bad because by the time we would get to judging the cakes, I couldn't stop laughing. Yeah. Well, All I would do was laugh the whole time. I saw just a couple of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, kind of teasers that you posted on social media and I was watching it and I'm just like, who? I'm like, he's interviewing Gaga. That's not a real person. Is this a wax figure? This is a really bad wax figure. Okay. I was so confused. It was so funny. It's so funny. It's My amazing. husband and I are also on a Discovery Plus show called Worst Cooks, Dirty Dishes. Ah, and yes. Yeah. Chris was on there, right? I think as well. Yeah. And we were, we just got the word that it's it's airing on Discovery Plus. And I'm so old. I'm like, I don't know what that is. So we're going to have to, <laughs> we're gonna have to explain that to me. Uh, have oh you shot God. the entire season? Yes. So we shot it in September. Okay. And so uh, new episodes come out every single Thursday. So right now we have four episodes out and an episode comes out tonight. So, yeah. Well, I think the thing that yeah. made you go viral is when you speak the truth, people are, uh, Coco Peru says people are hardwired to hear the truth, yeah. you know, which is why we've been so traumatized for the past four years. We're being lied. We were being lied to every day. Yes. People are going, can't you see we're being yes going crazy right and um and i think when you did the potato salad one and (laughs) that's that's when i discovered you i was like raisins and potato salad is a crime against humanity (laughs) absolutely (laughs) so what's the end game for you kaylin what do you what's the ideal situation for you do you think because you you've started acting you were in the seth Mm rogan movie how Mm -hmm. was that experience 
Oh, it was great. I, I love acting. I think, but I don't think that's necessarily what I would want to do in the long run. I think I would like to do it like every now and then. Yeah. Um, I think the end goal for me is that I I kind of wish that I would have majored in broadcast journalism. Like I want to, I want a morning show or like oh, okay. a talk show or like a panel show. Like I, I want to sit and talk about what is going on in, in the world on a daily basis. Like yeah. that that invigorates me. And I think that may also come from me just having the opportunity to watch Ellen do it every single day. Right. Of being like, and, how, and how much work that is. I right. Mean, yeah. Right. And to see also how good she is at it, to be like, yeah. I want to do this. This is what I want to do. Well, this is your broadcast school, being on that show every day and seeing everybody on the floor and For seeing sure. what it takes to, to put on that show day after day after day. That's mm-hmm. your broadcast school. You couldn't get a better broadcast yeah. school than that. Yeah. So, Kaylin, let me ask you then, right? Because now you're now you're kind of at this this uh, this crossroads where you've hustled, you've killed yourself, you worked really hard. Mm-hmm. You can see the levels of success that you can achieve, and you also want to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. So, how do you at this point? How how do you kind of gauge or determine how how you're able to work really hard without it trying to prove your worth? Like, how can you mm. make sure that you are, you know, that you maintain this value of representation without having to carry an entire community on your shoulders? Mm. That kind of thing. I, I think for me, it is doing everything with purpose and intention. So mm-hmm. any opportunity, it's like, okay, so what is the purpose? What is the message of this? Okay. How will it help us? How will it uplift us? You know, is it just for fun? Are we just doing it to be doing it? If that's the case, then we probably shouldn't do it. Yeah. We should only do things that we have to do and not just extra fluff, you know? And so I think that's very much uh, finding focus or actually seeing like how much energy does it take to do this, you know? Or how many resources do I have to use to get this done? What is the the time frame for the work of it all? You know, and stuff like that. But also I I'm starting to learn how to trust my team more. You know, mm-hmm. I think for me is that I, I did a lot of, because I was so, so much of a workaholic and usually doing everything myself. Mm-hmm. I had this team that a lot of times I was always checking in being like, you know, on top of everything. And now I've become the type of person they send me something. I'm like, thank you. Wonderful. Great. You know, mm-hmm. and just allowing and, and trusting people to be able to do it while also keeping my hand on the pulse. Yeah. I, I think you're going to rule the world. I think you're, I just saw it. I have the shine. You're going to, it's your planet. We're just going to live on it. So, uh, please, I'm good with that. A, I'm good with please that. Please be a kind and merciful ruler. And, and <laughs> Al, Alec Mappa. Yeah, yeah. And Matthew Dempsey. So we usually end the show with a, um, you know, you, you're so great. We, 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 we sped through the show. It went by in the blink of an eye. Yeah, we usually end our broadcast with a, with a hot message from our guests for the hot mess podcast. And given what you went through in 2020, what would your hot message be? My hot message would be is to realize that you have time. Mm. You don't have to do it all at once. Give yourself a break. Give yourself the chance to breathe and relax and be present in the moment at all times. Because once the time is gone, it's gone. And you do not want to look back and wish that you would have enjoyed it more. Mm-hmm. That applies to sex, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I went. There's time to yeah. do anything. Just breathe and be present. Yes. Um, you're amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yes, thank you. Thank you. It was an absolute joy. And where can everybody find you uh, in general? I make it very easy. Everywhere at the Kalen Allen. All right. Do you read your DMs if I DM you on your? Absolutely. Baby, please. Yes. I've been a big fan of yours, Alec. I, I watched all your stuff growing up. So I love Aww. it. Oh, see. 
It, it's all because of me, Matthew. <laughs> it's all because of me. We adore you and we'll talk to you soon, yeah. okay? All Here right, thank you. Thank you, Karen. Bye-bye. Wow. That's I this I think we just we just met the second coming of Oprah is what's yeah. Going on. yeah. I agree. That one's gonna be an empire. I know, I love him. What's your hot message of the day? Oh god, I think maybe a couple of things. One is something that Kaylin said earlier, which is I am not my productivity. Mm. So making sure that that can be a mantra for ourselves, especially when we, you know, feel like we're clawing to do more. Um, and then the other thing is just kind of the concept of intention that Kaylin was talking about, you know, really checking in with ourselves before we do anything. The purpose. Why, the purpose. Why am I about to do what I'm about to do? And who and what does this serve? So checking in on that and letting that guide you. Love both those things. What about wow. you? Um, just, you know, it's, it's, I guess the message of the show over and over again is that you don't have to do anything in order to be loved. Yeah. You don't have to... If that is exhausting. Yes. That and I and I can only say that because I've done it. I've yeah. I've like you know been on a unicycle juggling bowling pins. I mean that was my life for so long until I'm like, you know that you reach a point like what am I doing this for? Do I hate myself? <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's like I'm yeah. already enough. I've already made. I'm it. already enough. Yeah. Um, where can we find you on social, big boy? <laughs> You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MJ Dempsey Psych and Matthew J Dempsey Psychotherapy on Facebook. You can find me at Alec Mop on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can find us both at Stage 29 Podcasts. Yep. Um, DM us. Slide into our DMs. Please. Tell us what's going on with you. We want to hear from you. We do, Matthew and I do shows where we just talk about stuff that um, we um, answer questions from everybody. We love yeah. doing that stuff. Uh, don't forget to download and subscribe and tune in next week we'll have more hot mess fun bye everybody this podcast has been produced by stage 29 productions for entertainment purposes only the contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice do not reflect the opinions of this company any of its parent companies affiliates subsidiaries promotional sponsors or advertising agencies the views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent for more information, please go to stage29.tv.